Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 8, If Memory Serves, is over, but we are just getting started on post-show recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and with me as always is a gentleman who, if memory serves me, has been brought here by a bunch of guys with big brains to put me in a simulation of a podcast where I can be the happiest I've ever been. Mr. Mike Bloom. Listen, as long as you're not using any sort of uh, knockout methods or indoor murder methods on me, you do whatever you want to do with your time. Uh, I'm not going to instruct you in any way possible because we know what happens when you're on a star base and you try to uh, give some instruction to Spock. He does not take kindly to that. I loved how cool he was through all of that. Like that was just like he was he was a BAMF through that whole thing. Yeah. And this is our first true glimpse at a. I'll use the term a sane Spock through Ethan Peck. Gotta say, I'm pretty impressed. I think he's got that Nimoy-esque baritone to his voice that really helps the dialogue come across. We saw glimpses of emotion, uh, obviously, through the the trying moments that he's exposed to. And we get a little bit of playfulness at the end with Captain Pike that, you know, hints towards uh, Nimoy's infamous relationship with Kirk. So... We're, we're through one episode. I feel like we I've already given the thumbs up to what we've seen of Ethan Peck so far. Listen, it's always tough to be compared to an immortal performance. But for what it's worth, if he's supposed to be playing the Spock between the cage and the original series, I feel like he's falling into that timeline pretty nicely at the moment. Yeah, I thought he was great. I guess the question is, where do we compare him to Quinto? Yeah, because that's the weird thing. I mean, Ethan Peck has continually insisted, including in the interview that I did with him, that he feels like Quinto is in a separate timeline, even though it gets a bit confusing because events from the Kelvin timeline, like, uh, you know, the Romulans genocide is going to be part of the new Picard series, which you would think is in the same timeline as all of this. It all gets a little confusing. Much You feel like you're basically Spock at one point with just <laughs> feeling like you're seeping yourself in time liquid instead of figuring it out as a solid. But, you know, I, I f- it feels like I really enjoy Quinto. It always felt his Spock was a bit more hot-headed and emotional. And maybe that's because it is sort of portraying his initial, you know, his initial tenure in Starfleet, whereas this Spock doesn't necessarily seem at that point. So I would say Quinto is sort of running alongside them while while Nimoy and Peck have been like riding motorcycle and sidecar. <laughs> I, I like I like the analogy. It's like it's like Quinto has his own bike. Yeah, exactly. And he's just sort of like, hey, guys, yeah, I'll, I'm hopping along, too. We're going on this nice bike ride together. And the other guys are sort of revving their engines to override him. No offense to Zachary Quinto, but... Again, Ethan Peck was very insistent that, nope, this is in the our original timeline. I based it on Nimoy particularly because I know that I'm eventually supposed to become him. And so on that note, like I said before, I think you really do see that intention through this performance alone in this episode. Yeah, I think performance-wise, there's really a lot to recommend it. I will say, if this is supposed to take place after the cage, Ethan Peck is quite a bit younger than Leonard Nimoy was when he taped the first Star Trek pilot. And that was painfully evident, I think, especially since we actually got a few glimpses of that actual pilot in the upfront, which is something that Discovery has never done before. And I'm curious, Mike, do you, what is your experience with either the cage or the menagerie 
uh, as it relates to discovery. So I obviously going into this season, knowing that both Pike and Spock would play major parts. I did watch both the cage and the menagerie parts one and two in retrospect. Maybe I didn't need to watch the cage because the menagerie is essentially a clip show of the cage <laughs> with actions around it tacked onto it. But yeah, that was sort of my experience just because there is such little information out there about Christopher Pike and his portrayal that I wanted at least something to glom onto. But I was floored to see actual archival Star Trek footage, including that beloved chintzy 60s theme song playing as well. And then as they show everything with Talos 4, it's smash cuts to, you know, our our pike standing on the bridge they've done some interesting things with the previously on i remember back in episode three was done in klingon and it referenced specifically klingon events so i like the way they've been working with that what was your initial reaction to when you saw all that archival footage open the show well here's the funny thing mike here's what i did the second i saw that archival footage i turned it off i exited out of the episode and i pulled it up I pulled up the original series in CBS All Access and I went back and I watched the menagerie and then I came back and watched the episode. Good. I'm glad you like the first part of the story just meant, well, I stopped watching the episode because <laughs> I was so angry that they yeah. referenced Good night, this. Folks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Good night, Spock. Uh, yeah. I, so that's interesting. You had it so fresh on your memory, ironically enough. So in that case, I mean, I'm assuming the shot compositions pretty much line up, right? Even though they're used in more flashy styles in this one. Um, they do pretty much. It's interesting, like how much of the spirit they've managed to capture of the old episode. And I have, of course, seen it many times in the past, but I really wanted to have the whole mythology of Talos IV fresh in my mind going into this because I feel like. This might be also, this is the first time we've directly referenced the original series in this way. And it's also the first time that I think the show is relying on you to have at least a little bit of familiarity with the original series. Right. And that leads to at least my overall thoughts on the episode, which, you know, I watched it twice. First time, I was not a big fan of this episode to the point that you were saying, I felt like you know, what I've really prided Star Trek Discovery on is even though they do have these tried and true things that they come back to sometimes, I know specifically in season two, to your point last week, they have done a couple episodes that are more mission of the week style. We like when they try to blaze a trail with new methods of storytelling, new types of characters, despite the setting it might take place in. And on paper, initially watching this the first time through, this felt like we were leaning too much on a joke that you needed to understand. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to just hear the joke itself. You had to know everything about the joke behind the scenes to understand the punchline. On top of that, there was some retconning going on. But when I rewatched it right before coming on here, I got to say, I really enjoyed it. My enjoyment sufficiently buoyed. And I think it's because... Maybe I concentrate less on the franchise impact of it all and more so about what was going on within the episode. I sort of realized that this opening is sort of a microcosm of discovery. It's a message that Alex Kurtzman is imparting onto the viewers of, OK, look, this is what Star Trek used to be. Great. Here's what it is now. So now we're going to move on from it. It feels like in the, over the course of like a one minute 
segment, he was essentially communicating what a lot of the internet has been complaining about for the past three years with this show. Yeah, that's that's a hell of a lampshade. Um, <laughs> I I agree with that. I think I would call it I would call it another example of the bumpy Klingon problem, mm. where you have different eras of Star Trek with the same universe and the same set of characters. And it's okay if there are a couple of discrepancies and a little bit of retconning. You don't need to dig so deep into it that you're falling all over yourselves to do a whole episode of Enterprise that talks about how the Klingons had a virus and then turned into swarthy-looking humans for a while. And I kind of like it when they just sort of say, well, it's a little bit different and you're just going to have to accept it and we're going to keep going from there. I mean, when it works, it's really interesting and it's immersive and you forget that there might be little differences. When it doesn't work, it kind of feels like really, really high budget fan fiction. Yeah, which, again, that was sort of my initial feeling watching this, especially with the Telosian stuff, because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, because you watched the uh, the TOS equivalent more recently than I did, the Telosians seem much more malevolent in their initial appearance in terms of really trying to trick Pike into staying on Talos so him and Vina could mate to raise, essentially, uh, a studied species. Whereas here, you know, they're a bit of a shrewd businessman, essentially, you know, wanting an eye for an eye when it comes to exchanging these memories. But otherwise, off of a couple of, uh, otherwise, from a couple of hushed comments from Vina, they seem pretty cool with everything. Maybe that's a change of heart from the experience. But, you know, this does do an interesting thing in shading in a pretty gray area between the cage and the original series. You know, we only see Talos twice before this once was in the cage and once was in the menagerie it was essentially like the beginning and end of captain christopher pike we're seeing a lot of the middle now so it's a cool thing in that if we're using this as a way to help build out the pike character which i personally am completely for i think i realized this week jess that this might be my hot take this week put captain pike for me on my mount rushmore of captains it's been eight episodes but i love every single thing that Anson Mount is doing with this character. Well, this is actually one of the central things I wanted to talk about in this podcast, because this is something I've been meditating on for a couple of days now. Pike is so good. The character is so well-written, and Anson Mount, I think, has exceeded everybody's expectations of what that character is supposed to be. So what should we do next with Pike? I mean, the captains on the Discovery initially... It sort of felt like we're going to have a new one every season, sort of like a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Mm -hmm. And canonically speaking, Pike does have to go back to the Enterprise at some point. But what do you think we should do with him? We keep him around here a while longer? Do we give him his own spinoff? Like, what's the best <laughs> play for Pike? Don't count spinoffs just yet. Maybe he'll become head of Section 31 because uh, <laughs> that's already tied in. It seems like there might be a, a vacancy open soon, considering everyone's growing resentment towards one Mr. Leland. I think I would love to keep him around because I think I realized that it was exciting to me at first, this idea of a consistently juggling figurehead because the main character for once was not the captain. The main character was the first officer. So it's OK that we sort of have this revolving door. But now that we have Pike in the chair, I'm like, let's keep him around for a while. He's building rapport 
with these people. He's got this fantastic, I, I think I talked about this last week, but he really does, in my opinion, combine my favorite things about Kirk and Picard in terms of their sense of authority and moral righteousness combined with just this, I don't know, this this brazen sarcasm makes for a really fun character overall. And, you know, when he ends up receiving those Delta rays, what is it? Protecting those cadets that puts him in that chair. That happens like a decade from now. So, you know, I don't know how much longer Discovery is going to go on. It's going to go on for at least another season. I say keep Pike along for season three. I feel like this episode is one indication that he is still a character that has voluminous amounts of information hiding underneath that frock of lovely silver hair. And I personally <laughs> would like to get to know a bit more about it. I thought it was, you know, exploring the the Vena dynamic, I thought was fascinating. And it also does a nice job of substantiating where he eventually ends up. So I would love to see more of that personally. Yeah, I I would too. However we get it, I think it's pretty clear that Pike is the standout this season and we need so much more of him. And it was even more apparent watching this immediately back to back with the menagerie and watching Pike, you know, original recipe Pike and seeing like what Anson Mount has taken from that actor and put into his own performance. Um, and then what else he's done with it to really make it his own is really, I'm not somebody that studied a lot of acting, but it's, you can deconstruct it by watching it and it's just really beautiful to watch. Yeah, I completely agree. And he's also starting to like ingratiate himself with the crew as well. This was such an interesting episode for me too, because I personally feel like this is a huge transitional episode into the back half of the season. You know, the first half of the season was all about what's the Red Angel? Where's Spock? Spot, stop here, stop here, stop here. It really feels like we have a purpose now. And well, we, you know, I'm sure we have quibbles about the episode or tribbles about the episode that I'm <laughs> sure we'll get into. But I was really excited by this idea of like discovery on the run as they warp off you know essentially fugitives at this point it's it's a really cool place for them to be and i think now that they sort of have a new mission as to what they need to do which is essentially to literally save the universe it, it provides some interesting ideas as to where the show's going to go from here and how it might be more singularly focused even if we do get the occasional relationship drama on board like we saw in this episode yeah, yeah, we ratcheted up the stakes in a big way this week, and I think it's definitely going to pay off. And we needed that pivotal point because I think there's only so many times you can go track down a red orb, and this really puts us on a path. And without being one of those episodes where it's just the chess pieces moving around the board, we definitely had a clear trajectory, and maybe it was just because they were able to, like, bring the Talosians in to give us the illusion that this was not what was happening. But I thought it was a really clever way to set us back on the course and give us a new thing to be going after. Yeah. So what did you think overall of the use of Talos for? And, you know, I think we had actually talked about this a bit at the end of our previous podcast about what exactly Spock felt like he needed with the Talosians. And basically he brought in, a, you know, a, a car that had a little bit of a rattling motor and they wanted the mechanics at the Telosian garage to tinker <laughs> with it and make it run well again. Yeah, and the motor was his brain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I love, well, you pointed out earlier that the Telosians of the cage were very much 
like malicious and like they had no compassion and they really like they saw Vina as a test subject and wanted to breed her with somebody and observe the results. And then the Telosians that ultimately accept Captain Pike into the fold in the menagerie seem a lot more compassionate. And I feel like this is kind of right and smack in the middle of that. And it's mm-hmm. like it's kind of like maybe this is how the Telosians discover compassion by having Spock come to them and get a favor from them and have them watch all of these videos of Michael Burnham and Spock's shared memories, it teaches them what human relationships are like and helps them facilitate a more compassionate way of zookeeping. Mm. Do you think they were at all hurt? I mean, I'm assuming they knew that General Order 7 was enacted against them, right, after the events of the cage. Do you think that might have sort of uh, tinkered with their minds as well, ironically enough, the fact that, oh, you get a slap on the wrist this time, you know, don't try to uh, manipulate people too much. You need to, and that sort of leads them towards the path of observation rather than just pure manipulation. Yeah, I think so, because there's also a point where they force Michael Burnham to give them the embarrassing memory, and it's like, well, they're Talosians. Why aren't they able to reach into her mind and get it? Is it adjacent to those like primal anger feelings that that Pike figured out is the best way to thwart them? I don't really know, but it felt like they were a little bit less manipulative and they were more collaborative. Mm. So it's an interesting note because obviously as the computer nicely exposits as the shuttlecraft makes their way to Talos 4, I mean, this is a community that's essentially lost their humanity where they were wiped out in their own huge genocide, producing just this race of super people who looks like have sort of lost their own essence of what being a person is. So I guess it's cool in that regard and that they're not necessarily keeping people to study them. The interesting thing about Vina is as much as she may come across sometimes like she is sort of a servant to the Telosians, the fact of the matter is she can leave whenever she wants. She just chooses to stay there, for lack of a better term, for vanity's sake, in order to, you know, keep the looks that she was provided via the illusions that the Telosians were created. But they seemed more in the realm of just figuring out exactly what makes people tick which I think is interesting given their own planetary history and, you know, what might come from here. I mean, I'm assuming that General Order 7 continues to be enacted, considering that uh, the only person that has visited it since the since the General Order 7 is this fugitive. And I guess it's not exactly a good guy that would clear the good name of Talos. Yeah, I guess not. Uh, but I want to talk about General Order 7 for a second because it sure seems like in most regards, the Star Trek universe is woke enough that you wouldn't think that they're the kind of people that impose the death penalty. And yet here we have General Order 7. And I feel like this is one of those areas where you probably didn't have to hew so closely to everything they said on the original series because we've kind of moved past the death penalty as a society and not as much as we should have probably, but we're really at a point now where we're re-examining that pretty closely and it seems like 200 years from now that's probably they're going to find a better way to enforce said law. Mm, well, first, don't say death and hue too closely together in one <laughs> sentence. That's really going to trigger Stamets. Maybe this is yet another 
Terran method that Giorgio brought over from her mirror universe. She's like, oh yeah, we use the death penalty all the time. I killed those uh, those Vulcans that looked the wrong way at me that one time. Totally gave them the death penalty. You can just That's throw it General Order about, 6. <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically all the General Orders are like, if you do anything, uh, you know, it, it's essentially you know, those, those crazy laws that all the states have that are randomly in their charters, all those would be punishable by the death penalty in Giorgio's world. So maybe... We've seen her work her way up the ranks of Section 31 already. Maybe she's already infiltrated that and said, you know what? Maybe she radioed in, hey, they're on their way to Talos. You know what? Maybe we should update those bylaws, you know, just to say if they happen to drop by, it could be a death penalty. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> yeah, that that certainly I think you've done a brilliant job of bridging together all of these disparate threads. And it almost even points to. Of course, by the time of, like, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, everybody thinks Section 31 went out of vogue ages and ages ago, and it had to go deep underground, and nobody talks about it. Maybe that's why. Like, maybe Giorgio comes in with her, like, authoritarian practices and her death penalty ideas, and it goes so badly that Section 31 is forced out of the conversation for a century. Mm, I like that. She brings her new managerial style to the branch and they have to get closed as a result because they're not getting the results. Uh, speaking of which, I'm going to just remind myself to put a pit in this because I do have a Section 31-esque theory that I want to bring up with you later that ties into where we're going from here. Yeah, I definitely I'm definitely here for it when we get to the Section 31 part. I think we probably want to exhaust all of the Talos stuff before we get there. Mm hmm. Talos is, a, um, Talos is a super blue planet, isn't it? How does it compare to the cage in terms of lighting? Yeah, I thought that was a little odd uh, because I thought they were basically a wasteland devastated by nuclear holocaust. It seems like they looked a lot more like a Southern California desert last time we saw it. Yes, exactly. Uh, and... You know, I will say there was some interesting cinematography things in this episode, like the Arwit Discovery, but this was a little little heavy on the lens flares for me, Jess. There was a lot, and I could understand maybe they were doing a lot with the Venus stuff to really show that, oh, this is more of an illusion. Uh, it's an illusion, Michael Burnham. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it, it just felt like, it felt like they brought J.J. Abrams in just for this one episode between the blue of it all and the lens flares. Yeah, it was very Abrams-y. Like all we needed was a smoke monster to complete that, and we got we got a giant black hole. Yeah, exactly. Uh, though Spock was very much the John Locke of being like, "Oh, yep, I'm gonna fly into it. I have I'm a man of faith here. Don't worry, man of science. I could take care of this." And he ends up prevailing here. Yeah, and it's really ironic, and I think they've kind of even called attention to this that Spock becomes the man of faith when. He is half Vulcan and he is supposed to be the entirely governed by logic one. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks towards what he vocalizes at the end here, which Ethan Peck has sort of outlined as well in his press, which is this is a man who's caught between logic and emotion. And he says even at the end, logic has failed me. Emotion has failed me. And so I think you sort of turn holistically, even though it turns out that the Red Angel is much, much less mystical than I think any of us thought in those first few episodes of this season. To your point, he says later on to Captain Pike, you know, this is weird for me to say, but you need to have faith that we're going to be able to, you know, that, that we're going to, that this is what the Red Angel is all about. And it's, 
an exciting turn from Spock. Of course, he's going to make his way back to the logical end of the spectrum by the time he gets around to TOS. But we'll have to see what exactly triggers that, because right now he is, while he mentally he is no longer adrift, I feel like life-wise he's still very much floating amongst the waves. Yeah, I mean, well, what's next for Spock, really? Uh, he's going to be on the fugitive ship for a while, and he's like the fugitiviest fugitive on the fugitive ship. Yes, that's so. very true. He basically piloted Discovery over the waterfalls at the dam, uh, trying to <laughs> escape from Tommy Lee Jones in his Section 31 <laughs> gear. So, I mean, obviously, the one relationship he needs to, he will, mark my words, he will patch up, is with Michael Burnham, because... Uh, it was fun to see Spock, Spock snap out of it because we finally got to see how they interact with real life. And it's it's a real bitchy dialogue just between the two of them when Spock first comes around to it. Oh, I love this. Uh, where they're answering the question with the question. And then it ends up with, yeah, do you actually think that beard is working? And Spock sort of touches the beard as if to say, now I ask that. I ask myself that question all the time. Yeah. Or, or just wait a minute. You don't think it is? Yeah. Yeah, it's spoiler alert. It's really not. Yeah, I mean, if, if we find out there's another reason for it later, fine. If it turns out it's just because he was so torn with woe that it caused him to grow the beard, then yeah, it's it's not exactly it's not exactly working. I, I want to see what clean shaven Spock looks like just so I can compare. You know, I feel like we don't have another result to compare it to to say whether it works or not. Yeah, it's almost like he's growing the beard to sort of obfuscate his appearance so that you're not constantly thinking about how he doesn't look that much like Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, that's true. Like, oh, well, if Leonard Nimoy had a beard, maybe he'd look like Ethan Peck. Maybe he would. Who's to say? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, this, the, the Michael Burr, I'm glad we finally saw this. I'll admit the actual reveal of what happened. I, I mean, I felt, I figured it was going to be something like this. I was a little disappointed with the outcome because it was a little like Harry and the Hendersons <laughs> of like, I need this thing to go away. So I'm going to verbally toss rocks at him, which is essentially what Michael Burnham did. That being said, the scene itself done really well. I love the choice to cut between the young Michael and Spock and the adult Michael and Spock, because it really just shows how this relationship has transcended the boundaries of time in more ways than one. I just don't think the material when you, I mean, there was nothing that could live up to it, right? We get a whole half season of Michael saying, I did something unthinkable, unspeakable, unforgivable to Spock, and it has ruined him forever. Like, that's a really tough bill to live up to. And what we got was fine, but I, I, I feel like it, a little underwhelming at the end of the day. I feel like I feel like Dr. McCoy said racist things like that to Spock every single day he was on the Enterprise. And a lot <laughs> of it was way worse than anything Michael said in this scene. I guess it's, if it's the first time you hear it, maybe that's the worst. Maybe, but it's also like, it's not like she stopped living with them that day. It's like she came back and they had to deal with everything. Like, clearly this wasn't the resolution that she hoped for. They had to work on it, but it seems like, you know, six-year-old Spock and 12-year-old Michael would have had to figure it out eventually. And it's strange to me that they never did. And I guess my question is, where is Amanda in all this? Because we know Sarek's off doing his own things. But I mean, Amanda seemed so, I don't know, caught unaware when Michael tells her in episode three about the, the strife between them. 
I guess was did Spock just sort of hide in his shell after that and not even talk to Amanda about what happened? What could Amanda suss out what was going on between the two of them? Because you could imagine, to your point, they're still living together after this. Uh, the rift is pretty wide and it would be pretty noticeable in this household, right? You would think so. Like, is she that is she that oblivious to anything that's going on. She's like the one human on the planet that has any kind of emotional radar for those things. You would think that she of all people would be able to notice it. And it's strange that they got through like six more years of living under the same roof and then never speaking. And she was surprised to hear that they don't really like each other. Yeah. And I wonder if that's something that she spoke to before about how she had to personally distance herself from Spock in order to embrace his Vulcan side, which now I'm starting to understand the real emotional trauma behind this poor kid. And I guess, you know, do, you, do we think there was another incident that spurred them separating or was it just the fact that Michael didn't get accepted to the Vulcan Science Academy, but Spock did. And so they just sort of went their separate ways. Yeah, we kind of get a little taste of you know, Spock says that that was the point where he tried to be way more Vulcan and quash down his human side. And I think maybe that played into it, too. I think he was probably really focused, especially knowing that logic extremists were targeting their household. I would imagine he was trying to be the uber Vulcan all the time. And that probably, I think, any distance you saw between him and anybody, you could chalk up to that. Mm, that is a good point. Yeah, that, you know, he not only leads a very dismantled home life, but on the outside, people don't necessarily know that the uh, human raises Vulcan has spurned him. They still think that, oh, he's close with her, therefore we're going to probably still bully him, uh, especially because he has a learning disorder, which is interesting that they didn't really talk about that in this episode. Maybe they'll talk about it in a future episode, since again, I think Spock is sort of stuck on Discovery for now, but... Do, you th do we think this is a wrap on the flashbacks this season, Jess, for these two? I hope not, because little Spock is so cute. He is. Maybe he should play like one of young Sheldon's friends, get brought aboard <laughs> the other CBS umbrella. Yeah, I, I'd be here for that. I might have to start watching young Sheldon. I, I, I was nervous at first because he was he was silent in that first episode. God only knows, you know, when he started opening his mouth in the uh, this flashbacks a couple episodes ago. But I, I think he did a good job, especially in this emotional scene where it's got to be tough to flash between the adult version of yourself and the child version of yourself and behave the exact same way. But I, I think he was able to pull it off. And, you know, I, I want to see more Michael Burnham with her natural hair, not the hair helmet. But I think that's a little too much to ask, given how quickly she had to assimilate into that culture. Yeah, I think these child actors across the board are pretty well cast. And I think, you know, you have a scale of you know, child actor believability and likability that extends like on one side of that, you have like Vengeney Wallace and on the other side, you have Henry from The Walking Dead. And I think we are definitely far away from Henry. Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, okay. You you cut out for a second. Uh, <laughs> okay. Was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Or season one, Will Wheaton, if we're throwing that name in there. Sure, sure. Which, by the way, uh, I don't want to go too tangential to Discovery, but did you see the tweet that's been going around this week? How Will Wheaton is now as old as Patrick Stewart was when Next Generation started filming? Oh, I, that makes me ancient. 
<laughs> as ancient as the Telosians? Yeah, I feel like I feel like I have a giant brain with a butt on the back of it now. <laughs> what did you feel about the update to the Telosians, by the way? Obviously, that's beginning again sort of the update in aesthetics, but I did see some people complain that their heads did not look enough like butts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the one takeaway, I guess. And it felt a little bit less like one of the things that I really liked, especially watching this fairly recently, is how like how practical effectsy the whole thing was in the 60s mm. and like you can tell especially watching on the hd screen you can tell that they that their heads like their fake heads are made out of a particular kind of foam and you can kind of see how the mechanism worked to make the little veins pulse and this is a lot smoother and i can see i think it's a logical update to fit into the more modern aesthetic and I think it's definitely far less extreme or offensive than like the Klingon makeover. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And it's also not going completely into like full CGI territory as well. Yeah. I think that the prosthetics are sort of a good medium to meet in. Yeah, yeah. And it just kind of highlights the prosthetics are much better obviously than they used to be. And I thought they really, they looked like they fit in. They felt believable to me. And I really, one of the things I'm really enjoying this season, I definitely wanted to talk about this, that there was that great scene in the beginning where Starfleet Command shows up and is asking Section 31 to go after Burnham and Spock. And you got such a great United Colors of Benetton assortment of people coming in from Starfleet Command. You had an Andorian and you mm. had a Tellarite and... You, they were recognizably those aliens from the original series, but they didn't look out of place. Like they didn't look like a guy. Like if you turned around, you could see the zipper going up his back. Yeah, that's very true, and it's a nice representation of. And I think that's also the benefits of the technology that we have nowadays is that you can represent. We talked about this before how you can represent all these different types of species in such cosmetic ways. Instead of, okay, how many ridges can I put on the nose of this person to differentiate it from the other person who has ridges on their nose? Speaking of the beginning of the episode, because yeah, we get some advancement of Section 31 in a way in that we do keep hammering this point home of, hey, Leland, Burnham's come, uh, Burnham, Giorgio's coming for your job, so you better watch your back. And yeah, he, uh, he pretty royally screwed up a couple times here. So I, I think... We might be saying GG to Leland pretty soon. Well, that's okay, because I really, I don't get why I'm supposed to care about this guy. Yeah, I don't, I don't really either. I mean, I think he's supposed to be a stand-in right now to represent how ruthless Giorgio is, even in this universe, that she's going to essentially be in a position to really stand as a threat to the Discovery. But right now, you need to sort of keep her in a subservient way to watch her work her way up. But yeah, I mean, this guy pretty much just has perennial egg on his face for <laughs> the entirety of Star Trek Discovery, it seems. Yeah, like there, there's there's no redeeming that guy. No, definitely not, uh, especially since he ends up falling for the oldest trick in the book. Did you? I definitely had that split second thing where when uh, specifically when he addresses Spock and Spock doesn't look up, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're illusions. Like yeah, this, they're, total, this totally makes sense. They're totally last Jediing it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I was a little surprised that they talked back, but I guess the Telosians are super uh, advanced from that perspective. But they also have a bit of a sense of humor as well, which, again, speaks towards significant advancement from when we saw them last in the series. Well, I think 
I think we got to give the MVP of the episode to Vina, who's clearly making great strides with the Talosians. Yeah, that's very true. And that was a super fun surprise. Were you aware of the work of Melissa George at all across the television or movie sphere before you found out she was in this episode? Well, I looked her up after the fact, and I believe I've seen her in a few things. Um, um, notably, she has a role in one of my all-time favorite underrated movies, Down With Love. I thought you were going to say Sugar and Spice. <laughs> no, so I've seen her. I've seen her around. I wasn't super familiar with her, no. She's definitely one of those people, right? I yeah. think the thing that I remember her is for is uh, recently on my movie podcast, The Hamster Factor, I watched The Limey. And mm. I believe she played that was actually one of her first movie roles. She sure just plays like this young teenager. So it's been interesting to, uh, you know, I got the opportunity to speak with her this week as well. And it was awesome to see her sort of bring this character to life in that she sort of is in the same position as Anton Mount and Ethan Peck and even James Frain as Sarek. And that you have to keep one foot in this performance where hers is not necessarily as iconic as everyone else. But it, it's still a comparison point while simultaneously creating a newer character and i gotta say given the limited runway that she was given i thought she took off pretty well especially in that scene with pike i think that was a really nice way to highlight her character that was used as a literal vessel in the cage in the menagerie while simultaneously really building on this relationship that we didn't know too too much about even from an original series perspective yeah that's true although i feel like I think she did a great job, but I do think some of the writing around, like, reintroducing her character and putting her together with Pike, I think a lot of it was really heavy-handed and clumsy. Um, specifically, I feel like her introduction when she first connects with Spock and Burnham, she goes up and she goes right up to Spock and is like, hey, Spock, it's me, it's Vina. And I thought that was a little bit high school reunion-y. Like, I'm not <laughs> sure that they would play it like that. And it felt very much like they're doing that for the benefit of us, mm. for the benefit of the audience. And that I didn't love. And I then I also didn't love the scene between her and Pike felt like you could have cut it out entirely, except for the fact that it demonstrates that the Talosians have the power to project something into people's minds, even if they're not on the planet. That's mm. the only reason that scene actually exists, because otherwise I don't think it really, I mean, it gives them a nice moment together and you know they end up together. So I guess from that standpoint, it's okay, but it doesn't really further their relationship. Like you can take it out of everything we know about the two of them and it doesn't lessen the impact of their relationship. It doesn't make him freak out uh, a little bit less, though, when she comes back to him and says like, hey, FYI, trust us and let them go from the tractor beam. Which that was an interesting scenario because I can't think in my time watching all this Star Trek. I don't think I've actually ever seen a situation where two people were caught between two tractor beams. And essentially <laughs> it was like a game of chicken with these two ships to figure out who's going to take them. Yeah, caught between two tractor beams and feeling like a fool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, I do see that point, And I do think that expository stuff on, on Talos might have been one of the weaker parts just because they were shoveling so much out there. Even her saying like, hey, Michael, this is what happened to me. And there's a little bit of retconning there as well, where, again, you watched this more recently than I did. The way that she showed Michael, like, this is what I looked like after the crash, seemed like, okay, <laughs> this is just a normal post-crash body. In the cage, wasn't it that, like, 
Telosians just didn't know what a human looked like, so in a very gruesome style, they like cobbled her together with all the parts they found from all the victims of this poor starship crashing. I think that was the intended effect, yeah. And but here it was just like, yeah, I was old and I have some scars and I have kind of a hunchback. <laughs> like, honey, this is the 23rd century. There's so much that can get buffed out of your skin these days. What? Just come, just come here. Yeah, yeah. Although, on the other hand, it seems like one of the other interesting things watching the menagerie is we know that you have like the Stephen Hawking wheelchairs where you can use your eyebrow to communicate complex thoughts and write entire treatises on mm-hmm. physics. And yet all Pike ever gets is a giant <laughs> washing machine with a Hel- Hector Salamanca bell on the front of it. Well, we know how much he hates technology, though, Jess. We know how anti-hologram he is. So maybe, like, it was his insistence. Like, that was in his will. Uh, like, his DNR-esque clause <laughs> of his contract. Of Look, if I am going to wind up being a vegetable, you better put me in the jankiest-looking thing possible. That's just who I am. Then you could even just give him, like, you could have the Hector Salamanca alphabet board, and you can just point to the letters, and he can beep when you land on the letter he wants. He doesn't have to be restricted to yes or no for the rest of his life. <laughs> I guess that's the role of a captain, though, right? Is that is, is that essentially a statement on it, that they just have to make a bunch of decisions, and there's no real nuance when it comes to captainship sometimes? white for pike all the time but here's another thing that i think is going to be really awkward for pike and vena because the one piece of information that they reveal here that i think is interesting to go back and think about what that means in terms of the menagerie um is when vena goes on the long distance talus call and talks to pike she says that she's been fine because the talosians gave her a fake pike to hang out with after he left so it's like he never really left and i feel like that's really going to make things awkward when he actually does go to her later <laughs> and maybe he acts to meet with illusory pike and make them fight or something that would be that would feel like very kg talosians that we know and love yeah, yeah, that's very cagey. Or even just the tension that it brings with Vino when she's like, oh, hey, remember that time we opened up the bottle of Bordeaux and we watched all those old Fred Astaire movies? And he's like, no, 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 that was fake me. This is real me. I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's very uh, Leia Brahms from Next Generation. Yes, yes. And because this is a show that is dealing with those psychological issues a lot better than its predecessors did. I would imagine this is going to come up. So this this is interesting because I feel like they were intending the exact opposite, right? By saying, okay, we really want to build out how much in love these two are because this is where Pike's going to ultimately end up. But what you're saying is through that little wrinkle they added it, they essentially complicated their relationship even more by saying that it might not be a happy ending where he beams down and she's not what he expects him to be or her to be because he's not this two-dimensional caricature that theologians have created for her for years. It's really like they met on a dating app and they've been texting back and forth and they texted back and forth for way too long before meeting up in person. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, hopefully it's not going to go full catfish, though I feel like if there's one person that can catfish well, it's those Telosians. Yeah, that's true. They they are old pros. Like you just call them Neve and Max because they are they are the catfish OGs. Yeah, just make sure you get your date close enough to Talos and they'll make it happen. 
Yep. 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 Although usually it's it's the other way around. It's the person that is doing the catfishing that contacts the show. Yeah. So <laughs> it's so interesting, though, because one of the things that I, I really liked about this episode, at least the second time around on that note, is what I'm really liking about Discovery, and I think an advantage of having it be consistently serialized, say for those few instances like we talked about where it's more one-offs, is that you really are able to focus on long-term relationships and it really feels like this episode was so relationship heavy between even those two, you have the Burnham and the Spock, you have obviously our, our Stamets and Colbert, uh, you know, drama. We even have the Tyler and Pike stuff, you know, break down after one episode of bromance. Uh, <laughs> Tyler's back on the defensive now, unfortunately. So it's interesting to see how relationship focused the show is and it was a nice indicator again of how even if there are these larger wackadoo mysteries going on at the end of the day star trek is sort of a people in a in a manner of speaking and that's pretty you know recognizable through the way these people interact with each other yeah that that's definitely true and i think i want to i want to call attention to this dovetails quite nicely with i think there was one scene that where all of that just came together and it was so like you could watch that scene in a vacuum and you would understand all the beats of it and what happened but if you know these characters intimately from having watched the series over time like it takes on so many more layers and i think we got to talk about Colbert attacking tyler in the cafeteria because yeah. there's so many interesting things that happen right there. Yeah, I still don't know how to feel about the Stamets and Culber of it all. Because, A, I just want Stamets to be happy. This character has now gone into Tilly territory of just getting continually crapped upon by the show. <laughs> they, they think that making Paul Stamets miserable is the best thing to do. And so even when he gets his partner back, his partner is not the same person and is lashing out at him and throwing stuff everywhere. But what I relished about this is we got to see a different side of Wilson Cruz. And from an acting perspective, I loved that. I actually saw something online where someone made a good point that I kind of wish we had gotten to know more of Colber in season one so we could see how his personality is so different now from what it was then. But that being said, the way he approached Tyler in there was so aggressive and wilson cruz like was legitimately intimidating it was a great way to see him i'd see a different side of him considering you know all we know of culver so far yeah well i think it's true that i want to hug stamets and i want him to be happy and content and in love but let's be real star trek is not very good at ptsd historically mm -hmm. like i saw in a Reddit thread leading up to this uh, podcast, I was looking at Reddit and somebody pointed out that, you know, Miles O'Brien should have been in the therapy the entire time that he was on any of his Starfleet yep. career. And they never like at the end of every episode, he's just himself again. And, you know, Picard has one episode where he deals with being assimilated by the freaking Borg and then he's fine. And, so the fact that there's going to be some outstanding personality changes and issues with someone having been dead and his murderer being still on the ship, I think it's good that we're going there. It's good that we're exploring what that means. And yeah, yeah it's 
it's so important that and it makes it feel like we actually these are actually real people. Yeah. And, you know, luckily it did not go the direction that we thought of the two of them being like, we're not so different. You and I we're both experiencing (laughs) PTSD. It really does seem like they're two sides of the same coin, right? We see that even when they get into, which I would commend the fight choreography on this episode as well. It was, it was on like the, not nearly on the levels of the, they live side of just watching a realistic drag out brawl, but they were really <laughs> like, they were exhausted holding each other up by the end. But, you know, Colbert says, uh, you know, you, you don't like, how could you know uh, what it is to not be yourself? And Tyler responds, who do you think you're talking to? And that's the moment where they choose to break. And I find that interesting that even though Colbert still sort of has this pretty pissy personality after that, maybe he found some similar territory there. Maybe Colbert realized that there's nobody to talk to on the ship about what he's going through because there's no damn counselor, but maybe the person he can, you know, confide in is the person who similarly has identity crisis, even though Ash Tyler himself is uh, not in a great standing on the ship as it is. Yeah, I think Ash Tyler shows up in group therapy this week. He's going to get his ass kicked, so maybe he should just take the week off. This was so interesting, though, in so many levels that commissary see, because first, did Tilly and Saru eat lunch together? That's so cute! (laughs) Well, it's nice that she's branching out. Yeah, exactly. But, like, of course it would be someone like Saru. And maybe she was doing it as sort of like a shadow. You know, she bungled her shadow opportunity previously due to May. And so maybe Saru's like, all right, we can have lunch together. You can ask me questions. Uh, but this is also an interesting opportunity to highlight Saru, too. Oh, yeah. That, Saru. Was a, that was a really interesting sort of dovetail of a couple scenes where he's like essentially playing the role of Team World Star and being like, hey, you know what? Let him fight. Let him, let him just kick each other's ass. This is what's needed. Yeah. And this is and this is again, this is something where. You understand what's going on cosmetically if you're just tuning in casually. But if you know the deep history and like everything that's been happening to Saru lately, it's like, oh, the ganglia fall off and all of a sudden he's like the Roman emperor in the gladiator arena. Yeah. Well, I just love particularly maybe my line of the episode was when Pike's like, well, why why did you think that was, you know, uh, that was a good thing to do? He's like, well, there's nothing in the rule book about the instance where one of your officers who is a human with Klingon bones grafted onto him gets in a confrontation with your medical officer who died and then came back to life. Yeah, that was the best. And it was so dry. And it's like, this is new, like phase two, sassy, badass Saru. And I'm 100% here for that. Yeah, I think that Doug Jones is having a lot of fun with it. I think we talked about this before, that it it brings a bit of confrontation with Pike, as well. We even see it in this episode where Pike is going to give the order to him of like, hey, don't let this stuff happen again. I, I think there's a chance it's still going to happen, especially if it happens to be moments where Saru is there, because I think that now I think he's gotten a big head from fighting for his species that he's going to say, you know what? Fighting is a good thing. Fighting helps resolve conflicts. Let, let's fight. So fighting. Yeah, exa- exactly. He could be he I mean, he is a genius. Uh, he yeah. does know he's a master of many languages. So that could lead to some more possible conflict. But I thought that was a little nice nugget. It, this was not a, a Saru episode whatsoever. But just to see a couple of actions he did in that episode really, to your point, speaks volumes about the arc that he's had so far over the past eight episodes. Yeah, yeah, I think what's going to happen, I think we've talked about this with regard to Saru in more Saru-centric episodes, is that 
There's going to be a point where this attitude fails him and he's going to overcorrect the other way. And him finding that equilibrium between his old self and his new self is going to be a very interesting journey. Yeah, I was actually surprised that when they do this confrontation of Ty- with Tyler on the bridge, that Saru is not more of the person to step up and be aggressive towards him. Instead, uh, hey, Commander Non, long time, <laughs> no time. I forgot you're the security officer for a hot second. Speaking of defense against the dark arts positions. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. But I'm I'm glad to see that she has a little bit of work to do. Clearly, she's been very busy. She's probably been too busy to be on the show. <laughs> well, she she could have been there to stop the fight. Why did Saru have to be the one to be like, oh, let's let's make this. Let's uh, I'll be the, the deeming factor here. Like non is a uh, non slacking a little bit. If she a whole, you know, lunchroom brawl happened and she knew nothing about it. Well, maybe she was looking into these unauthorized data transmissions. Yeah. Can we talk about the uh, sporespiracy or conspiracy, as it were? <laughs> I think that's our hashtag is conspiracy. But um, unauthorized data transmissions is itself a callback to the menagerie. So nice little nice little uh, shiny piece of frosting on on the cake that is this episode. But yeah, it looks like we have our confirmation that Arium has been hacked. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it, I and this leads to what I wanted to talk about before because it's linked to section thirty one, and we're going non canonical here. Jess, uh, do you know about control? I looked into control a little bit um, because it kind of rang a bell, but it. You know, I'm not going to go down yet another. This is going to be like the second time in a week that I've gone down a Robert Heinlein rabbit hole on a podcast. Um, But as I understand it, control is an AI system that advises Section 31. Is that is that about right? Exactly. When Giorgio tells Burnham that Leland's just a puppet who's getting his strings pulled control seems to be alluded to as the one who's pulling the strings. And I believe that uh, there's a big novel uh, about how it's like a, 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 a community of like data and Bashir come together to eventually bring down control. But yeah, they're the, it's an AI that's leading section 31. And so I wonder that, and you know, this brings up the idea of the probe as well, which it looked like from what we saw from that brief glimpse of the mind meld, that the, the things that were disseminated to the, the all over the universe to destroy it, did it look that different from the cephalopod matrix squid that was attached to the probe when it came back last week? Uh, but it's it could be that maybe somehow, you know, Arium has been controlled by control to report this information back to Section 31 using Tyler's codes to frame him. Yeah, I mean, that certainly accomplishes any of Section 31's goals pretty neatly. Um, and yeah, I think it was very interesting that the glimpse we got of the ships destroying everything is that they do look very much like the thing that attached itself to the probe. And that makes me wonder, like we talked last week about this being kind of a V'ger scenario where they shot the probe into into the future and then it came back 500 years later and had evolved into something malevolent. Like, did we bring this on ourselves? Yeah. Or could it be like a terminator skynet situation where in this future the red angel represents the resistance and the probes represent the status quo and so because i think we the initial assumption by both pike and us last week was okay the red angel was the one to 
Rich to fix up the probe, send it in, and sap all this information out, when really it could be that maybe the opposition to the Red Angel figured out what they were doing and decided to utilize time travel in their own way as well to try to get their intended outcome. That's convoluted, but really great. That's that's Star Trek. Yeah, that I, I can see that. That's definitely a very Star Trek-y kind of path. Um, can we talk about the fact that the probe used multiple SQL injections? Like, WTF, are they still using SQL in 200 years? Yeah, I guess it, it stands the test of time. Coding has a base, and it that unlike Spock's base, which has been rocked to its core, the bedrock of coding will exist into <laughs> way into the 23rd century. Oh my goodness, we better hope there's no, like alien lieutenants named drop table well that's the thing is that you would think it would be theoretically easier to infect somebody with this type of stuff especially someone who is a we had this conversation on social media with a lovely listener this week i guess it's like she calls herself a cybernetic human technically i believe is that is that the language yeah it's still weird like we're gonna need a whole episode next week about arium and they need to tell us like they need to spell it out what well, she is seems like not to talk too much about next time on because i don't want to spoil too much but it seems like from what the previews are indicating she's gonna go rogue and we're gonna explore a section 31 base for some reason uh you would wonder if these guys are escaping section 31 why they're going back there and also why the admiral is on board lots of questions to be raised with next episode but yeah it looks like we are meeting that issue head first next episode for those of you that were just jonesing for this to get resolved yeah, I feel like we needed it sooner, but I'll take it whenever we can get it. And I think there's got to be something to do with the fact that um, because the spore drive is down, because it's been hacked, um, they have to drive everywhere like regular people so <gasps> they can be tracked. So mm. I think that's what happens. Mm. Like they have to drive somewhere like a caveman at regular warp. They can't spore drive it. So they're going to be tracked and they're going to be pulled back in by somebody. I think that's how they find their way onto the base. But we'll see how that all works itself out next week. I got to say, morally, uh, everyone seems pretty okay on Discovery with going through the mycelial network and possibly dropping off another contagion accidentally that ruins their ecosystem. They're more than happy to just jump nilly-willy nowadays. Well, they fixed it. Everything's fixed forever, right? Yep, exactly. It's just so interesting that at the beginning of this season, they said, nope, we're not using the spore drive anymore. They said it was too dangerous. And now they're like, all right, jump. Yeah, go to the grocery store, pick up some milk. Let's jump. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's they, they get really they really went from one extreme to the other. Where it's like, oh, we don't know what we're doing to this ecosystem to all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, jump in. Let's go. Yeah. And maybe they can, I don't know, maybe they can hide out on the mycelial network or something if they're really, uh, at the, the, you know, the hot cops of space are after them. They need to hide out while things cool down somewhere. You know, that really seems like if we put one person in there for a while, look how much damage it did. Like, let's just hide the whole ship there. I'm sure that's going to be just fine. Yeah, there was something, again, not to talk too much about the previews, but Pike does give sort of an announcement over the loudspeaker of like, hey, things are going to get a little shaky. It makes you realize these poor people that are on board this science vessel. Granted, this is more of a direction, directed directional vessel, vessel in that people know exactly what it's about. So you just have to assume that they're on board for that science mission in particular, not just to live there. But still, like being a pleb on board this ship has got to be horrific as of late. 
Oh, but they're here for it. They're totally on board with it. Like there's a point where Pike tries to give everybody that kind of speech, um, similar to what we saw in the very early days of this show, where he gets up and he says, uh, you know, we're going to do something that's against everybody's orders. And Detmer's just like, but, 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 we're going. Bye. Yeah, I love that. I love that even halfway through the season, they're sort of lampshading the some of the bloviating speeches that Pike likes to to put out there. And it was just a great moment because it was Michael said, you have the crew. And I feel like that's such a great comparison to the very first episode when she had to convince him, you have us, you know, we won't let you die. I, I think it, it shows a really nice arc over the course of those seven or eight episodes. And again, it really hammers home that point of how I want Pike to stay now that he feels he finally feels like a true member of the crew, in my opinion. But now that Spock's back, We'll see if and when his name gets cleared. Maybe that gives him more initiative to come back. Maybe he'll bring over Rebecca Romaine because it seems weird. She was in literally five minutes of the season so far. We we shall see. Yeah, I think it almost feels like there's so much to sort out. How can we sort it all out in the few episodes we have left? Well, there's plenty of short treks to supplement it as well. I guess that's true. And it's kind of amazing. We've managed to work just about every short trek into the series as well. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, I think uh, jury's still out as to whether Zora is the uh, is is the Red Angel. We got a bit more clues about the Red Angel, at least the mission. So we shall see. It'll become much more of a central mystery. Did you do you feel like since what we know about it now, did any theories you feel like get honed in on as to who it may be? I don't think we really got a lot more information about the Red Angel, except to note that it definitely we we thought it was a humanoid in a mechanical suit. And we've kind of got confirmation that it's a humanoid with a humanoid brain because it was able to mind meld Spock. Mm. So I guess we're we did narrow it down in that regard, like it's not some kind of robot or something that doesn't have a mind meldable interface. But I think. Really, details about the Red Angel's identity were pretty few and far between this episode. Right, so it's not Arium. Arium is not confirmed as the Red Angel. Who knows? Maybe, I mean, we still don't know what the hell Arium is. So if it turns out she has a real human brain, then all bets are off. That's very true. So, yeah, we shall see. I, I mean, it was an interesting furthering in terms of what the Red Angel did. And I guess it recontextualizes those red signals as well. Because now it makes you think, if the Red Angel's ultimate mission is to direct this timeline off of, you know, the current path that they're on, which actually is pretty reminiscent of the uh, JJ for the first JJ Abrams Star Trek movie from what, uh, you know, Nimoy's cameo was trying to do as well with the Romulans. You have to wonder, okay, why did the angel take them to new Eden? For example, why did the angel take them to that asteroid with jet Reno uh, I guess you could imagine that the asteroid took them to the dying, uh, the dying sphere to get all this information so that they could utilize it later on. But I guess you have to really look back and figure out, OK, if this was the grander mission, what was the meaning of all these stops along the way? It's it's a lot like um, how we have the diary in the Chamber of Secrets that then we also have to move forward and then there's the part where we have to bring Voldemort back in book four it's very like very horcruxy I think yeah exactly like it feels like there are certain parts of a plan that the red angel wants to bring together and essentially we don't necessarily know what they are until we get the full 
picture. So it should be super interesting. I do want to throw out one more quick thing that I saw on Reddit as well. Do you think that, speaking of timelines, in the original series and onwards, the reason why we never hear about Michael Burnham is because that all takes place on a timeline where the Red Angel was not able to go back in time and warn Spock, and as a result, Michael Burnham died. That's interesting. I I feel like that's a little more complicated than I'm willing to give Discovery credit for, but it's valid. I, I can see where you can pick all the pieces together for that. Yeah, I would say that I think if people are really jonesing of like, well, it's sort of like the Spock brother thing as well of, oh, Spock never mentioned that he had a family like that, even though Spock was very reticent to reveal personal details anyway. This is something that you could sort of put in your pipe and smoke, metaphorically speaking, of, okay, maybe this is just a different timeline that you're dealing with where Michael Burnham did get killed by the weird scorpion creature while (laughs) running away on Vulcan, and as a result... Uh, you know, maybe that traumatized Spock to the position where he's he's in now. Maybe that made him maybe that was his own traumatic experience where he realized, OK, screw emotions. I'm dealing specifically with logic. And that directs you to the Spock that we see in the original series. I'm not entirely sure, but it's an interesting thing to explore. I totally agree that I think Discovery does not want to make it that complicated by doing that. We're getting into like Legend of Zelda timeline theories when it comes <laughs> to that perspective in terms of who dies, who wins, etc. But it was something interesting I found that I thought could supplement some beliefs for people that have really had this stuck in their cross since Michael Burnham was connected back to Spock. I guess so. But I think we still, even if that was what happened, we still would have had Spock mention at some point, oh, yeah, we had a random human living in our house for six <laughs> months and then she got eaten. Yeah, that's very true. Though, again, uh, maybe it's just nobody asked him. Hey, Spock, did you ever have any humans live in your house who got eaten? Yeah, I guess it wouldn't be logical to bring it up. That's very true. All right, Mike, is there anything else you want to you want to touch on before we before we bid everybody good night? Where do you think we know obviously where Stamets is is goes from here, but what do you think Hugh's position is now? He feels much like Spock, very adrift. He's lost his bedrock. Do we think there's anything that's going to come of this new Hugh and his identity crisis? Well, I think the ship is in the middle of kind of a precarious situation, and I think bonds are forged between people that go through something traumatic together. So I strongly suspect that he and Stamets could come around again, but they have to go through the fire. Mm. And so we're going to have a lot of opportunities. I think if all of this had been going down when they weren't running from the law, I think you might have a point where Colbert's just like, I got to go on a monastic retreat and he's going to disappear for a while. But I think because they're forced to be on the ship together and go through this stuff together, I think we're going to see their relationship, maybe a new kind of relationship form. I'm excited for it as much as, Maybe that relationship drama pulled away from all the other interesting stuff that was happening in this episode. I feel like Kolber really examines, I don't know, from a philosophical perspective, I'm always really into these interesting ideas of, you know, if you took all your atoms and you put them in a different body, are you still you? And that's what Kolber's dealing with, right? He said, I've been reconstructed as myself. I've been given back my own memories, but it doesn't feel like me. And he's so, he can't put into words as to, why he's feeling that way. And I think that Saru alluded to this, you know, when he came back of, 
maybe he's he isn't himself maybe he's a new version of himself or the version that he was meant to be so we'll see where we go on that and whether that goes the more you know sci-fi route of oh maybe he he has i don't know maybe being part spore comes with uh some some his own little tardigrade-esque powers i'm not entirely sure but it's an interesting pin to put in where he goes specifically with his relationship with tyler which as we mentioned before they're much more similar than they are different yeah it's it's true like they they could all benefit from the same group therapy and saru can go to that too (laughs) yeah exactly i think saru needs to go to anger management yeah, Saru needs something. <laughs> he definitely needs something. Maybe just something to like calm him down a little bit. Like maybe, you know what? Kaminar's known for its whole horticulture. I'm sure there's something medicinally in those flowers that could definitely help <laughs> calm him down a bit. Though, given the stakes of things, uh, he might not want to do that anytime soon. Yeah, let's let's maybe lay off the, the herbal remedies until we get out of the mess we're in. Yeah, I'd say so. All right, so I think that about wraps it all up. On that note, uh, we want to thank everybody for all the great tweets that you are sending our way uh, and all the great interactions we've gotten about the show. We're really glad that you're enjoying listening to us, and we're glad that we're sparking dialogue, and we appreciate all of the questions that you raise for us because it really gives us a lot to think about as we're constructing the podcast. So if you want to reach out to us, there are many ways to do it. I think the best way to leave a detailed comment is go to postshowrecaps.com, find the thread for this episode, and leave your comment there. We read those. We respond to them. We like seeing them. You can also reach us on Twitter. Of course, you can find me at Haymaker Hattie. You can find me at a Mike Bloom type. You can check out the Star Trek Discovery coverage I'm doing for the Hollywood Reporter, thr.com slash Star Trek Discovery. I mentioned my interview with Ethan Peck that I got to do last week. Should hopefully be doing some other stuff in the next couple of weeks as well as we warp into this new phase of Discovery. But no matter what, I am so excited to see where we're going next. As am I. And Mike, as I understand it, we're going to be having a substitute for you. Um, you're going to be indisposed for a couple of weeks. I will be. Yes, I'll be. Uh, I'll be going on my own little retreat, I suppose, down to Talos in order to, uh, I don't know, uh, have a good time with some buttheads. I'm not entirely sure, but <laughs> uh, you should be in good hands. My absolutely lovely, wa- lovely wife and a huge Trek fan, the Kirk to my Vena, Miss Angela Bloom will be on the podcast to talk to the next couple of episodes of Discovery, and I'm really excited to hear her opinions on things. Uh, She's been a fantastic watch partner, and I'm excited to hear her talk with you and bounce back a bunch of inane ideas, as we usually want to do on this podcast. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited to get Angela's take on everything that's been going on. Um, So, with all of that, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and we're going to see you next week, and say goodnight, Mike. Goodnight, Mike. This post-show recap of Star Trek Discovery comes to us thanks to our friends at True Car. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date. The luxury package you got after a big promotion. The giant cube of salvage that contained only your ship and none of the robotic squid probe you picked up from the time rift. Or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. 
Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof, watch as they bump up your value. High mileage, you already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you could take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer not available in all areas.